I love Christmas time. We celebrate Christmas every year. And this year, what I've chose to do for December is to do a series on some of God's greatest gifts to, to help the church gain perspective on what a gift truly is. And that's this part of the motivation. Today, obviously, being the Sunday before Christmas, we're going to look at the greatest gift being Jesus Christ Himself. Um, Bo read the verse out of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, where God, 600 years before Jesus ever came, foretold through the prophet Isaiah, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. There's, there's certainly no biblical mandate for us to celebrate Christmas the way we celebrate. Um, there's not a command in Scripture that says you must give each other gifts every year. And you must do it in this way, on this day, whatever. But we nonetheless have great biblical precedents to do what we do during Christmas. Um, I've spoken about this often, and I try to point these truths out in Scripture often so that you start recognizing the language of Scripture. We just read, to us a son is what? Given. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He, he gave. That's the language of Scripture. Um, God loved the world, so He gave to the world. And we emulate, we, we emulate that act of giving during Christmas. That's why we express, how we express our love to each other. And it's an expression mirrored off of what God did. God loved, so He gave. We love each other, so we give gifts to each other. Now, I want you to know, just because you don't receive a gift from me this year doesn't mean I don't love you. It just means my checkbook doesn't love you. It loves my kids more and my wife more. But there's always, in Christmas time, there's always that caveat. I can remember as a child, and I just spoke at Dara and Kathy and Travis's uh, company banquet, and I asked all the kids present, I said, kids, what do you, do you, do you want underwear at Christmas? And all of them, no, you know. They always end up getting underwear because that's usually what they need. But of course, there's always that caveat during Christmas. Christmas is that time where usually we, we're willing to splurge on something that we don't really need, but we've always wanted. We just could never justify buying it before, right? There's always that, that question, though, do I really need this? And if we're honest with ourselves, I think we would all admit that we often get things we don't need at Christmas. It's, it's a time of splurging. But when we start applying it to Christ and, and to God, as I was thinking through this sermon, I just asked myself, one, what, what is the nature? What, why did God give Jesus? Okay, We see in Scripture, for instance, when it comes to what God gave us, um, He gave us what we need, even though it wasn't necessarily what we wanted, what we were looking for. Um, and it was His will to do that. He loved the world, as we just said, so He gave to the world, and He gave what we needed. But it was also expressed in Scripture, it wasn't just the will of the Father, this was also Christ's will. right? Paul said in Galatians 2.20, he said the same thing this way, but applying it to Jesus, he said, The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, Jesus, who loved me and He gave Himself for me. So it was God's will to give us His Son, but it was also Jesus willing to give Himself. And so the will of the Father and the will of the Son were one in that. They came for us. That was their heart. That was their will. They were in unity in that. Perfect unity. 
and they executed their plan perfectly. But we don't often stop and ask and and make the connections in Scripture. What is it about Jesus that I need? If God gives me what I need, what was it about Jesus that I needed? I mean, we celebrate His coming. We sing of His birth. What was it about that that I need? To answer that question, I want to start back. I want you to find Romans chapter 5 and just bookmark Romans chapter 5 real quick. That will be the passage we deal with primarily. But to set Romans 5 up and to answer our question, what was it about Jesus that I needed? We're going to go all the way back to the beginning, to Genesis. In Genesis chapter 2, we find the creation narrative focused in on day 6 of creation. God has, has made all the creatures. He's made Adam. Eve has not yet been made yet. Adam has been naming the animals. He's been placed in the garden to tend, to keep it. And God gives Adam a command in Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to keep it. And He commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So there's a command given. Disobedience to that command would be sinful. Sin would be incurred, and the result of sin would be, according to this verse, death. Right? Then we skip down to chapter 3, verse 1. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to be to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now it's interesting, just as a side note, Adam was with her. Never stepped in, never spoke up, never led her out of the temptation. He was there, though. Verse 7, Then the eyes both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What was it about Jesus that I need? Well, we get from this account several things. First, the command and the conditions of life and righteousness were given to Adam. Adam, you can eat of any tree. You're in perfect standing with me right now, perfect fellowship. But if you eat of this tree, you'll incur sin and you'll die. So the conditions, the command and conditions of life and righteousness were given to Adam. And then we read in Genesis 3, those conditions and that command were broken by Adam. What was the result to mankind? Two primary things, sin and death. And when you look at human history, Those two things have plagued mankind since the beginning. Every period of human history is marked by sin. And every person who's ever lived, save two, has died. Even Jesus died, but He was raised from the dead. 
So when we fast forward to Romans chapter 5, Paul, in a masterful way, I, I believe inspired by the Spirit of God, makes all these connections for us. What was it about Jesus that I need? And it corresponds to those two realities that haunt me. The reality of sin in my life and the reality of death is coming for me. And in Romans 5, he is going to tackle this head on. So I want to read with you Romans 5, 12 through the end of the chapter, if you'd read with me. Paul writes this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not yet counted where there was no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the, have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification." If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous." Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's what I want to look at this morning. What is it about Jesus and God giving us Jesus that we needed? First, we're going to consider Jesus the person. And then we're going to consider the two things that Paul identifies for us in this passage that Jesus provides us. Righteousness, number one, and life, number two. The two things that were lost in paradise are regained by the man, Jesus Christ. And the fourth point is, all of that is a gift of grace, including Jesus Himself. So let's consider this. Jesus Himself is the gift that we celebrate as we've already established, that's the language of Scripture. John, John said, God gave His Son. Isaiah 9.6, For unto us a Son is given. So in our passage here in Romans 5, Paul identifies Jesus as the corresponding person, the antitype to Adam. And if you noticed in that language, that whole passage is a compare and contrast. Through the one man Adam came sin and death. Through the other man, Jesus Christ, came righteousness and life, right? It's a constant compare and contrast, antitype versus the type. And Paul plays heavily on this relationship. So the first thing that we find, why Jesus was given to us, is that we needed someone not of Adam to come deliver us from what Adam gave us as an antitype. Jesus is... In other words, going to be our head. Adam was our paternal head. From Adam we 
incurred sin, and through Adam we incurred death. But now through Christ as our head, we incur righteousness and we incur life. Why is that important? Because as long as we remain of Adam's lineage, we'll never escape sin and we'll never escape death. It is a, if you think of a box, we are in the box with no way of getting out. And someone from outside the box had to come in to free us. Okay? That's why this is important. Every year, um, Fox News does something. They have a, a, a recap at the end of December of all the famous people that died that year. And I like, I like looking at a lot of the people I don't know. A lot of the people I do know. And as I looked at that display this year, it was shocking to see some of the stars that we lost because there were people I was familiar with, whether they're musicians or actors. I'm always shocked at how many people died that year. Um, on a personal note, it was, it was interesting to me because you know a lot of these people were just carnal, wicked people, honestly, who died and the world celebrates them. But on a personal note, there were two men who died this year that have really impacted my life. One's name was Philip Johnson. He was a former atheist turned Christian and one of the founders of intelligent design theory and movement. Brilliant man. Um, very brilliant man. He died this year. And then the founder of my seminary and professor, Norman Geisler, who impacted my life profoundly, died in late summer. Very, very sad time. Even those saints with Johnson and Geisler, death came for them, right? So what kind of deliverance is it that Jesus is after? We're going to answer that in a, in a minute. So the man Jesus Christ Himself is the gift. Jesus came, born of a woman, Paul said in Galatians, taking on flesh. He did that for a reason. So that He might become the antitype to Adam. Adam gave us sin and death. Jesus comes to give us righteousness in life. So that's the first thing we celebrate in the birth of Christ. And that answers the second thing. Jesus is the antitype of sin. He gives us His righteousness. Look at verse 17 of Romans 5 with me. Paul wrote this, If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I always grew up thinking righteousness was something that I achieved. It was something that through my works, through my behavior, through my thoughts, I was either good or I was bad. My, my actions were either righteous or unrighteous. And according to the law, there is a level of righteousness we can achieve, right? Paul said, according to the law, under the law, I was blameless. But is that the righteousness that, that we're after? Is that the righteousness that will justify any person standing before the Lord? No. You can keep the law perfectly, as Paul did, and still be condemned. Why? Because there's a righteousness of God that men will never get to. That we can never achieve. And that's why Paul says here, Righteousness is a gift. And we don't think of righteousness that way. We think of righteousness as something I've got to earn or achieve. And Paul says, no. You need righteousness. Without righteousness, no one will be able to stand before the Father. 
We'll all be condemned. We all fall short of the glory of God. So what does Christ provide us first and foremost? He provides us righteousness. The Bible makes it clear, one, that there is deeds of the flesh that we've all committed. Every one of us has sinned in the flesh, whether it be a little white lie or adultery, right? We've all committed sins in the flesh. But there's another aspect to sin that we don't consider. I remember when I first came to faith in the Lord, I heard a pastor say this, and it it made something click in me. He said this, We sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we've sinned. That was a foreign concept to me. I always thought, well, yeah, I've I've lied or I've done this or that, I've stole, so I'm a sinner. Uh, I got it backwards. Why am I lying? Why am I stealing? Why am I coveting? Because by nature, I'm a sinner. And it's propelling me to do these things. So I've sinned in the flesh, but I also have a corrupt nature. It's a double-edged sword for me. But what about Jesus? When we're talking about righteousness, what about Jesus? Well, one, Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that Jesus was in the flesh, tempted in every way as we were. But it concludes something. He was without sin, right? So deeds of the flesh, Jesus never sinned. Well, what about the nature? The nature was inherited through Adam. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He didn't have a corrupt nature, nor did He commit acts of sin in the flesh. Therefore, the righteousness of God was truly His. It was His, and it's His to give us on our account. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness, including taking the penalty of sin. And I don't know if we always think of the cross as a righteous judgment of God. What was the command back in Genesis that we read? Adam, the day you eat of this tree, you'll surely die. And it's a just penalty. So Jesus dying on the cross was fulfilling all righteousness even in that act of judgment. The life He lived and the death that He died was to fulfill all righteousness. And it was because He was blameless, the Scripture says, the grave could not hold Him. Because the grave was a penalty and a result of sin. When He was found blameless, the grave had to let Him go. He rose. So that's why the Scripture says, the righteous shall live by faith. Because it is faith in the righteous Lord, Son of God, not faith in my own righteousness. That's exactly what Paul says. If you want to keep your finger here in Romans, turn over a few books to Philippians. This is exactly what Paul says when he's kind of contrasting and comparing. Yes, there's a righteousness according to the law that you can gain. You might never have stole anything. You might never have told a lie. You still fall short of the righteousness of faith. In Roman, or Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake... I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which, he's referring to righteousness, that righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. You see very clearly, people who try to be righteous in the flesh will never attain it. Righteousness is a gift from God, and it depends on faith in the Son of God. 
I love meditating on this point because Scripture talks about sin not just as a moral failure, but as a moral debt. Literally, every time you sin, you're owing a debt. You're incurring debt. Just like on a credit card. You go swipe, you go swipe, you go swipe. Someday the check's going to be due. There's moral debt that we owe that we could never repay. The minute we've sinned, it's over. Right? And we were guaranteed to sin because our nature would bend us that way. So sin is a moral debt. What does God do? The Scripture says He credits His righteousness to our account. It's an accounting picture. Anybody who works in business or balances their checkbook understands this. I need righteousness for my moral debt to pay off. Christ has righteousness and He credits it to my account. So that when God looks at me, having trusted in His Son, the debt's paid because of the righteousness of God given to me. Does that make sense? I want to read a passage in the Old Testament. It's another metaphor to help us understand this concept of righteousness being a gift and why it is that we need it. In Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, Isaiah writes this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. For He has clothed me with the garments of salvation and He's covered me with the robe of what? Righteousness. God takes of His righteousness and He clothes me in it. So that as I stand before the Father, what am I clothed with? A righteousness of my own? No. I'm clothed with the righteousness of Christ. To further illustrate that same point, go to the book of Zechariah. You can find Zechariah. It's right before the book of Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 3. This is the very imagery again that the, the Lord uses to communicate our need for righteousness and yet the reality we ourselves are in. In, in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 3 and following, says this, Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. It's a metaphor for being sinful. He's clothed in filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Again, metaphor for righteousness. I will clothe you with righteousness, just like Isaiah 61 says. So the first great need that's haunted mankind since Adam sinned was we need to be righteous, yet we will never attain it in ourselves. So what does Christ give us? He gives us His righteousness. So that when the Father looks at me, He says, perfect, I'm satisfied. See how that works? When you grasp that truth, church, it will set you free from works. There's nothing left to be done. I've been clothed with the perfect righteousness of Christ so that now I can stand before the Father justified. Not of my own, it's by faith in the Son of God. What a beautiful, beautiful picture and provision that Jesus gives us. The first great need of mankind, righteousness, is one of His gifts to us. But there's also the penalty of sin, which was death. 
In Genesis, if you've read the rest of the account, you know that Adam didn't die physically immediately. He lived another 900 and some years. His death was twofold though. We talk about spiritual death and we talk about physical death. The tree of life was given to Adam, I believe, to sustain his physical life. And the reason Adam eventually died was because what was he cut off from after he sinned? The tree of life. So his body eventually corrupted and went back to dust. But what he did incur immediately was spiritual death. And what the Bible says spiritual death is, is separation from God. And we know that happened immediately. Why? Because Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden and no longer walked with God. They no longer had immediate and perfect fellowship. That's spiritual death. So what does Christ answer for us? First and foremost, He gives us spiritual life. Perfect fellowship once again with Him. Physical death may come, but it will not no longer be a curse. It will be actually our homecoming. But let's talk about this, okay? Phys- our eternal life, I-, I want us to understand something about eternal life. We usually only think of eternal life in terms of a duration, right? And, and we should think of it that way. Eternal life is never-ending life. But it's also talking not just about duration. Eternal life also talks about the quality of life that we experience. There's the old Greek myth of Prometheus. Remember, if you've read any Greek mythology, Prometheus was cursed to push the stone uphill and he gets to the top of the hill and what's it do? Rolls back down. He's got to do it over and over and over for eternity. That's not the kind of eternal life I would want because it's not very quality. It's a judgment, right? That will be uh, similar to, well, not similar, probably far less. Scripture does talk about eternal punishment, eternal damnation. But when it talks about eternal life, it's pointing not only to duration, but the quality. In other words, what Jesus gives us in eternal life is the very life of God. Okay, It is life absent of death. It's life absent of sin. It's life absent of sorrow. It's life absent of judgment. It's life absent of pain. All effects of sin. Let's look at this. Let me read this verse to you. This is out of John chapter 5, verse 24. And we'll turn over to the book of Revelation together. But you see this quality of life, not only the duration depicted in this verse. So verse 24 of John 5 Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. But he qualifies it. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So we see it's a duration. He has eternal life and there's a quality. He doesn't come under judgment. He comes from death to life. There's a quality about it. This is made more explicit, though, in in the book of Revelation, if you want to turn there with me. Chapter 21. We see the quality of eternal life that Jesus is talking about. Revelation 21, verse 1, says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. There the very life of God will be with men because God Himself will be there. 
He will dwell with them and they will be His people. So what is the quality of His dwelling? He will wipe away every tear. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So when God gives us eternal life, He restores the spiritual fellowship lost. And He gives us and promises a quality of life where the effects of sin will be no more. What about physical life? What does that mean? Are we going to escape physical death? No. But physical death will no longer be a curse as it was to Adam and Eve. Right? In fact, physical death will be the doors that open up and give way to eternity for us. The reversal of the curse, because Jesus, the Scripture says, became a curse for us on the tree, death no longer is a curse for us. It will give way according to 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Physical death is no longer to be feared. Christ overcame the grave. But is, phys- is this eternal life a gift? Back in Romans, we've read chapter 5. Look at the very last verse of chapter 6. Paul says, The wages of sin is death. We read that in Genesis. But the free gift of God is what? Eternal life. Is eternal life a gift? Yes, it is. Just like His righteousness is a gift to us. Eternal life can't be earned and righteousness can't be earned. Both are gifts depending on faith in the Son of God. So going back to our Christmas narrative, why we celebrate the birth of Christ, what was it about Jesus that I needed? It's the two things I could never achieve. Righteousness and life. And so Jesus coming in a manger, being born of man, walking and living perfectly, taking the penalty of sin and death, fulfilling all righteousness, in that life and act of Christ, He gives me the two things I need most, but would always elude me. And it is all, according to Romans 5, gifts of grace. It's free. Let's look at this, okay? All of this was what grace brought about. We know the biblical definition of grace is receiving what you don't deserve. It's yours. But there's also the the fact that it is free. Verse 15 of Romans 5. But the free gift is not like the trespass. Right? Down in verse 17 of Romans 5. If because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. But best of all, in the very last verse of Romans 5, you actually see every single element I've outlined in my sermon. You see the man, Jesus Christ. You see the gift of righteousness. You see eternal life. And you see that it's of grace. Let's read it together. Verse 21, So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Is that amazing? In one verse, Paul summarized the Christmas narrative and what it is Jesus came to do for us. All of His grace. But in verse 17, in case you missed it, how is this gift of Jesus and what it is He gives us? How can I get it? Can I buy it? Can I purchase it? No. 
Verse 17 says this, much more will those who what? Receive. Receive the abundance of this grace. So what's left for me to do? Receive the gift. That's it. I loved the illustration at JR and, and Travis's company um, Christmas banquet because they, they love to, to do good to their employees. They have tremendous gifts that they give them. But there's a caveat. You had to have your number pulled, right? They, they, they got numbers as they signed up and signed in. And if your number was pulled, man, you could get some pretty awesome gifts. And I made the point to those people. I said, look, your number's been pulled. <laughs> you just have to receive it, the Scripture says. John chapter 1, verse 12, For all who received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. What's there left to do? Receive. That's what Christmas is about. I tell you, come Christmas morning, my girls are going to have no problem receiving the gifts we got them. I don't have to ask them, right? They're chomping at the bit. Church, when we truly understand what it is we have in the person of Jesus, His righteousness is mine, eternal life is mine, and it's free, it's, it's His grace toward me, and I just have to receive it, it fills your heart with joy. It fills your heart with freedom. Christ has done it all. What's left but for me to receive what He's done. John 1.17, John summarized it so well in the coming of, of Jesus. He said, from Him, from His fullness, we all received grace upon grace. Just think about that statement. From His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. He said in Romans 5, Paul said in Romans 5, where sin abounded, what abounded much more? Grace. That's what Christmas is about. That's why we celebrate by giving each other gifts that we didn't buy. Maybe we don't deserve. Maybe it's something we wanted and not what we needed. Maybe it's both. But it's a picture of grace. Of course, it falls far short. I want to end the sermon with a passage back in Revelation. Chapter 22. If you want to read it with me. I love this passage because it's the last chapter of Scripture. It's the, the last chapter of God's revelation to man. And one last time, we have one last appeal of grace to us. It's beautiful, right? It's beautiful. Revelation chapter 22. Let's begin reading in verse 12 together. Behold, I am coming soon, and I'm bringing my reward with me. To re repay everyone for what he's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The Spirit and the bride, which is the church, say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. 
Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Let's pray. Father God, as we celebrate Christmas this year, what a tremendous message. It is a message that will be sung in eternity and for eternity of Your marvelous grace which achieved for us sinners what we needed and yet what we could have never done ourselves. We needed righteousness and we needed to overcome the grave. But You knew we couldn't. We were ruined by the fall and death was inherent to Adam. And so it was inherent to us. But in Your great love for the world, You gave Your Son conceived by the Holy Spirit, but born of woman. So that as a man, He could fulfill all righteousness for men, yet being the Son of God, He was perfect. No consequence of sin in Him at all by a ruined nature. And He lived the perfect life. He fulfilled righteousness in His death by taking that penalty and paying it in full so that the grave could not hold Him. There was nothing that could stop him from entering out of that grave. So, Father, we celebrate the magnificent, wonderful truth of Christmas. The great love story of God toward a fallen world. Something we will never fully comprehend. But it's true nonetheless. Father, we rejoice in it. We receive it with great joy. We receive that gift with humility and thankfulness, Lord. Let us now worship You because of it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.